Clay Helton is out as USC head coach. The breaking news came out yesterday. Also, week two was crazy. Had a lot of interesting games, some crazy upsets, some weird things happening. There's a lot to talk about, so let's just get into it. Hey, it was BYOG, bring your own guts. Fourth and five, the national championship on the line. Got the big man. I think Notre Dame got him on third. Put it on the board for Bama. Country, post free. The Hitler's got it on the defenseman. Lewis has got a score. It's picked off. Breaks free, they won't catch him, I don't believe. Fires to the end zone. He's going for the corner. He's got it. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis. It's caught. It's caught. It's caught. Oh, is that a good game or what? What is up, everyone? Wow, there is so much to get into now, especially with this USC news. And like I said, I'm I'm only getting about one shot a week right now. I'm finishing up a contract I'm doing with IndyCar. So I'm following these last three races of the season. I'm actually in Oregon right now as we speak. I was in Portland this weekend at the Grand Prix. Now I'm in Southern Oregon where my parents actually live recording this podcast in one of their spare rooms. And I'll be heading to Monterey, California tomorrow to go cover the the race there. Then I got the race in Long Beach. So until that contract's over, it's going to be hard for me to get two shows out a week, which is ultimately what I would like to do. This week's the perfect example, right? I'd love to talk about this breaking news at USC. Could spend a whole show on on this topic, right? But then want to talk about everything that happened last week and and maintain the big picture status that I like to always, you know, hover above when it comes to college football, but I'm going to have to try to squeeze all of it into this show. So let's just jump into it. And I think I got to start with this USC news. So USC this weekend did kind of a typical USC thing that they've been accustomed to doing under Clay Hilton in this modern era. And that is they lost to Stanford and it wasn't a very good Stanford team. We're talking about a Stanford team that couldn't move the ball at all against Kansas State, a Kansas State team that I don't think is going to really compete for the Big 12 or anything. It's super early, and we'll see, right? When when we get to the games from this last weekend, we'll talk about how, you know, early in the season, a lot of times we literally just have no idea what's, what's going on. So who knows? But regardless, the first thing I want to say is firing Clay Helton was absolutely justified. And I don't think most disagree with that. But firing him now when they did was also 100% justified. Because USC has done this before, right? Clay Hilton's been on a hot seat. Then the Trojans finish strong. He does just enough for you to keep him, right? Well, Clay Hilton ran out of those, right? Clay Hilton got to a point now where... USC wants to be back. They want to be USC competing at a minimum for Pac-12 championships every single year. They want to make college football playoffs. They want to win national championships. And the sport needs that too, right? I'll, I'll be honest. I'm pretty excited today because if you guys know me, right, I'm focused on the grand picture of college football and what college football needs more than anything right now 
especially with the SEC expansion and the alliance. They need another team that's not in the SEC to jump out and join the Clemsons, the Ohio States as a big-time national power that scares teams. And the only real program that can really do that consistently is USC. They haven't done that, but they're the program that has potential to do that. And there's expectations there. And Clay Helton was just really not coming close to meeting those expectations. Every year, even in the good years he had, you have to be more focused on what wasn't achieved than what was. The great Rose Bowl year was Sam Darnold. That was a great season. That was the first year that USC did this whole, hey, like we didn't have a hot start, but Clay Hilton kind of salvaged his job, right? If you go back to 2016, USC opens the season with Alabama. They get crushed 52 to 6, which that, that doesn't matter, right? Alabama, like I've talked about in the last couple weeks, they kill everybody in these neutral site openers. That's just what they do, okay? That, that's what Alabama does. So they blow out USC. That isn't what derailed USC's season and kept them from a potential playoff berth. It was what happened three to four weeks later. So after that, USC drops a game to Stanford on the road. They lose 27 to 10. Then they lose at Utah the week after that. So USC starts the season in 2016 one and three. So playoff hopes done. Pac-12 hopes pretty much done, right? Two Pac-12 losses. And that's when they make the switch to Sam Darnold and their season completely turns around. They win a bunch of games in a row. They beat Washington, who did make the playoff that year, at Washington. And they end up going to the Rose Bowl, since Washington went to the playoff. They kind of go to the Rose Bowl, and they play that epic game against Penn State. And I've, I've said this for many years now, but Penn State and USC that year in 2016, they both you know lost a couple games early and then finished really, really strong with huge wins, right? When USC had beaten Ohio State that year. But they both got left out of the playoff. And that's a year that if we had an expanded playoff, these two teams would have been very, very dangerous. I think just as dangerous as the two teams that won the title that year or or played for the title that year being Clemson and Alabama. Clemson, Alabama would not have wanted to play USC or Penn State at the end of that year based on how they were playing. But as great of a season as that was for USC and the bounce back and the way they played at the end of the season, how can you not focus your attention on Wow, if we just wouldn't have dropped the Stanford-Utah game, if we would have made the switch to Sam Darnold sooner, we're probably a playoff team. And who knows what could have happened in that playoff had USC been in it, right? Now, 2017, it was like, okay, Sam Darnold's back. USC does drop two games that year. They lose to Washington State, which was kind of the unexcusable one, right? And then they lose to Notre Dame, rivalry game, but they got killed in that game. And they finished 10-2 and two in the regular season, or maybe 11-2. and two. I think they do go win. Yeah, they won the Pac-12 championship game against a 12th-ranked Stanford team. That was a good game. But then they went to the Cotton Bowl and played an Ohio State team that had just barely missed the playoff. And they kind of get dominated in that game. Now, who cares about the Cotton Bowl? In that particular matchup, USC was just not the better team. And a really good Urban Meyer, Ohio State beat them. Whatever. All right, 2018 comes around. And USC is a six and six team. What is going on now? Or I think they went four. They they're a five and seven team, right? They don't. That is insane. Now Clay Allen's really on the hot seat, right? But they let him come back, and 
it's the same story, right? USC just, you can't lose to inferior teams. Like I said, don't have a problem getting blown out by Alabama in a kickoff game. I don't have a problem losing to that Urban Meyer team in that Cotton Bowl. But you can't lose to inferior talent. It's my biggest pet peeve in college football. It happens all the time. But it's my biggest pet peeve, and it's the number one thing that shows coaching to me. This weekend was a perfect example, right? Stanford does not have the players they used to have. This is not a typical Stanford team from the last decade, right? David Shaw has is a great coach. Stanford's always going to be disciplined. They always have a chance. But USC has the best athletes in the Pac-12 outside of probably Oregon now. Oregon's finally built up a roster, and we'll get to Oregon later, where they are deep. They play real football there. It's not the Chip Kelly days of finessing your way to 10-11 wins and then you know getting beat in a bowl game by a SEC defense that has time to prepare. They play that style of defense. So, so number one, USC's already losing two teams with inferior talent, right? A lot of these losses are inexcusable. The Stanford game that just happened is a perfect example of USC has to win that game. It's a conference game. You have better players. You don't have the better coach. And that that's the one cool thing about college football is excellent coaching can totally outweigh roster talent. And USC just hasn't been developing these players, and they haven't been winning games against teams that they should win. And they haven't been playing a defense at a level that they could go beat, you know, a Clemson, an Ohio State, an Alabama, like these SEC-style, you know, strong defensive teams. That's where you see what Oregon's done has been so impressive because Mario Cristobal, and by the way, he is a candidate for this SEC job we'll get into, he came into Oregon and he's like, okay, you know, Chip Kelly came in here and made this, this Oregon team successful. Offense was high-flying. But at the end of the day, Marion Cristobal understands that if Oregon ever wants to actually make a college football playoff and then have a chance to win in that playoff, they have to recruit and play physical football at the level of these other power programs in the South and like Ohio State. And they prove that they finally have that team this weekend. Again, get into Oregon later. But USC is more than capable of doing this. The talents around them, they already have a pretty good roster right now. Clay Helton's never had a bad roster. So he is always underperformed based on the talent level. And they're always losing a game or two, sometimes more, to teams that are roster-wise inferior to them. That's got to drive you crazy. So this decision was long overdue from that record standpoint. And I love the saying of like, don't delay the inevitable, right? Don't do what needs to be done now, later. So everyone's like, well, why didn't they wait till the end of the season? Like USC could turn it around because it doesn't matter if they turn around. If USC kind of turns it around and goes 10 and two this year, that's not good enough. Clay Helm's already done that three or four times. The whole point was take the next step of not having these rocky starts and recruiting better. So as soon as USC lost the game to Stanford, it was obvious, okay, Clay Hilton's still doing the same old stuff. Let's move on. So I'm actually glad that they did that. The second thing that was Hilton's problem at USC was, was recruiting. Like I said, they, they maybe were one of the more talented rosters in the Pac-12, but that's not good enough for USC. 
USC's been getting out-recruited just in their own conference by Oregon and even Arizona State. Arizona State's been coming into their backyard and taking the guys that are remaining. Not to mention, on a national scale, Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State are coming in, and they're getting the first picks of all the top California kids. That cannot happen if you're USC. You have to lock down your state. The best guys have to have USC at the top of their board. That's how it used to be. When Pete Carroll was at USC, you were not going to come in and get a five-star quarterback, a five-star running back, defensive back, any of those guys, and pull them across the country, right? Uh, DJU at Clemson, he's a California guy, right? A lot of those stud defensive players at University of Oregon, those are California guys. And Oregon's been lucky. They're coming in and they're like, okay, we're going to, all the guys that don't want to actually go across the country, right? Like, like DJU's like, hey, I'm going to go across the country from Southern California and go play in South Carolina because that's how much he respects the program of Clemson. Players do that at Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia now, right? So Oregon was coming in and saying, well, we're going to come in and get all those guys that don't want to go all the way out there and at least convince them to come up here and not go to USC. And basically, that's been Clay Helton negative recruiting that has caused that. So if you're USC, Clay Helton on both fronts, it had to be done. So I'm glad it was done. That being said, you're looking at the, at the scene now and like, who can USC hire? Now, I think USC should be patient here, right? It, that's the other reason why it's good they did this early. They have the whole season now to let things unfold and to decide who they need to bring in. Because unlike some of the other big-time jobs, I think USC is kind of more of a unique fit with the whole LA thing. That's why Pete Carroll was such a good fit there, right? Pete Carroll is like a, an Urban Meyer or Nick Saban, one of these, these all-time college coaches, but he had that thing that worked in LA, right? We're, we're like Nick Saban, and obviously I trust Saban. Saban could take any job, and he's gonna be successful in the college level, but... Nick Saban is a much better fit at an Alabama or like a Texas LSU, right, than I think he would be at USC, not that he couldn't succeed there. So they've got to be careful with this, and it, it's good that they have a lot of time. Now, on a personal level, I'm just going to throw my favorite candidate out right, right now, and that's Chris Peterson. If I'm USC, I would do anything to get Chris Peterson. I've always thought that Chris Peterson is a top three, four coach in college football some people didn't have him up there because he never went to a big giant program and had success with a national championship or any of that but if you think about relative to where he was at he was phenomenal he built Boise State into that Boise State program that we all know now right the BCS buster is basically a term created by Chris Peterson and those Boise State teams. And when he got them into big games, no matter how inferior they might have been on the field talent-wise, he also found a way to coach them into staying in those games, whether that was the way he motivated players, right? Kind of an Urban Meyer factor, like he had his players ready to play, or from a factor of like, as a schemer, as a game planner, he always had something dialed up, right? We all know the Boise State trick plays that won them the Fiesta Bowls and got them into all those big games. So, and he is a West Coast guy, right? And I think 
he would fit. The thing is, is I don't know how realistic Chris Peterson is because it seemed like he was never interested in that big time of a job. He had multiple offers, right? Multiple people tried to poach Chris Peterson. One from Boise State all those years. He finally moves on to Washington. When he's at Washington, people tried to come after him. He really had no interest. And he achieved pretty well at Washington, turned them into a Pac-12 North power, made the college football playoff with them. And you see where that program has gone since. So I would love to see him back in the college game. I just think based on how he left Washington, it kind of seemed like he was like, I'm done with big time college football. I love football, but there's too much politics. There's too much, you know, maybe you kind of got to play dirty to win over the biggest recruits at the biggest jobs. And, it, and I don't know if he wants any part of that. It kind of seemed like that's why he retired. So I don't know if that's realistic. But if it was possible, I, I think he would be the best coach that any program really could get if they needed a coach right now. But I don't know how realistic that is. So keeping it realistic, and obviously everybody's thrown out Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer. And I don't want to say that's completely unrealistic because with Urban Meyer, you never know. I could easily see Urban Meyer having a bad season in Jacksonville this first year. And Urban Meyer is the type of guy that would probably be like, okay, I'll just jump back into college. And Urban Meyer's so good at getting himself in and out of the best situations for himself personally, right? Like he goes to Florida when he does instead of Notre Dame, right? He could have gone to Notre Dame back then, but he picks Florida. Obviously, that was the right decision at the time. Wins two national championships. As soon as Saban starts to build up Alabama, Urban Meyer has health issues, retires. All of a sudden, the whole trestle scandal at Ohio State happens. The Ohio State job comes open. Urban Meyer jumps back into college, goes to Ohio State, and then he's out there basically kind of related to the the one little scandal with his his assistant coach. And now he jumps into the NFL. He's up for that challenge. But NFL is hard. I mean, ask Nick Saban how the NFL went, right? The greatest college football coach of all time struggled in the NFL because it's just a totally different style. Sometimes being really good at college coaching doesn't set you up for the NFL because in college, and I think this is especially true of Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer has always been more of a motivator and like a, I get the best out of my players and I get them to play super hard. And in the NFL, that doesn't really work as well because there's a bunch of grown men. You have to be a offensive and defensive just genius. It's more about scheming, right? And that's why Belichick's so good because he is, you know, a schemer, but he's also gets the best out of his players. So you have to find that that bridge in the NFL, and, and who knows if Urban Meyer will be able to find that. So if, if things aren't looking good, Urban Meyer loves to win. He can't stand to not be at the top of the game. So I think if Urban Meyer is you know, middling in the NFL with a losing record this first year, he might be like, yeah, I'd rather go back to college and be top dog and take a program to national championships and stuff. So that's possible, but I don't know if it's, super realistic. I mean, it literally is his first year at this new stop in the NFL. So it, it all just depends, I guess, on how committed he is to trying to make that work. We'll see. We'll see. One of the more realistic candidates to me, and this should scare Oregon fans, but it's Mario Cristobal for, for several reasons. One, Mario Cristobal has built Oregon into a, a, a team that can compete with all types of football teams, right? 
they're modern in their offense, but it's not Chip Kelly back there, the old Oregon teams, right? They're modern, but they're physical. They can run the ball downhill. They've developed great offensive linemen. And on the defensive side, they've also developed physical, strong players that can stop the run. I mean, you saw what they did at Ohio State. They basically kind of shut down that run game. And they're finally a roster that isn't just going to finesse their way into maybe a Pac-12 championship and then get beat by, you know, an SEC defense. They have proven that, hey, if they can make their way to a playoff this year, they can probably hang in that game physically. And they're deep. And most of those recruits are from California. So Mario Cristobal's already proven he can recruit Southern California at Oregon. The question is, is is Mario Cristobal up for leaving Oregon? I, I don't know the answer to that, right? Mario Cristobal had a chance to take the Miami job after just being at Oregon the one year, and he chose not to, which was probably the right decision. decision. And I think that has Oregon fans convinced that, oh, he's here to stay. But Miami is not really the same job as USC. And I know Cristobal had ties to Miami because he literally played there. Uh, he won a national championship there. I think it was 89. But USC is the, has the resources, right? And hopefully USC is at a point where they're willing to fork out every resource, put all the money in. Because let's face it, we're at a point in college football. If you're not going to spend the money and be as obsessed with football as the other big schools, you're never going to beat them, right? If you don't do what Alabama, Ohio State, Texas A&M, and all those programs do, you're never going to get on their level. Part of the reason Oregon has overachieved based on like the type of program they used to be is because they got that Phil Knight Nike money. They have some of the best facilities. They've done an incredible job with their brand and recruiting and being unique to what they have up there. And that's why they've been able to grow. I mean, Oregon is one of the best examples of money can buy you a championship. And not just, you know, throwing money at things, but also using that money very smartly, right? Like Oregon, I would consider them like a marketing genius as far as college football power ascension, like the way they've rised in the sport over the course of this decade. And again, I'm going to get to Oregon later, staying on USC right now. But Cristobal is a guy that if I'm USC, I'm going after. Already a proven West Coast recruiter. If you see the team Oregon has, that's exactly what USC wants. And the reality for Cristobal is, if you can be that good at Oregon, you can be even better at USC. Because even though Mario Cristobal has recruited really well, Oregon fans, you got to be aware that your ascent into dominance over the course of the decade has pretty much been in large part because USC has been down. That's, that's just the reality. As soon as Pete Carroll left USC and they went on probation, Oregon became the Pac-12 power, and, and kind of along with Stanford, right? Stanford and USC don't really recruit the same exact type of kids, but Oregon and USC do. And when Pete Carroll was there, he took all the greatest players from California and kind of the leftovers went to Oregon. Because remember, no good players come out of the state of Oregon, maybe one a year, one or two a year. If Oregon is going to win conference championships, playoff berths, they need players from California and in and, and other states too. They even get guys out of Florida and stuff. So if USC was rolling this whole last decade, Oregon probably doesn't have the success they had. Now, Oregon maybe has gotten to a level because of the last decade where it's a, it is a lot more even. Even if USC starts rolling again, 
they're not just going to be like, we're USC, come to us over Oregon. Oregon has now built a brand and is a lot harder to compete with. But I still feel like if USC has the right coach, gets back on track, they can keep recruits from going to Oregon, right? It's going to be more like, hey, we're competing with Ohio State, Bama, and Georgia for those just top dogs because those schools recruit nationally. Alabama puts on a board. They don't give a damn where the kid's from. That's never going to make them feel like, oh, we have less of a chance to get this guy. If a guy's in Alabama and Alabama wants him, they get him. If the guy's in California, if the guy's in freaking Europe, Alabama wants him, they go get him. And if Alabama wants your guy, there's a 90% chance you're not getting that guy. If USC rises to power, they can at least hopefully lock down the local guys in California. And California is one of the richest recruiting states. Pretty much all of the Pac-12 has a ton of California guys on their roster. And even a lot of these, you know, SEC teams, some of their best players are coming from California, right? Clemson gets California guys. So does Alabama. So it's really going to shake things up in college football. And I'm super excited because it would be really nice to see USC back. It'd be cool to see USC back without an Oregon drop-off, even though I don't know if long-term that's going to be possible. And that's, again, why Oregon should be kind of worried and scared, even if Marion Cristobal stays at Oregon, because these recruiting battles that he's winning, if USC brings in a new coach, especially if that coach does pretty good in year one next year, well, you're going to start to see the scale tip back towards USC's way. Also, look at UCLA is ascending up right now. So that's kind of making the whole rivalry down there, the whole thing in LA getting pretty interesting, which the reality is in college football, you can't have all these teams great at the same time, right? It's not the 90s anymore, like, right? I'm As a Florida State fan, I always talk about, like, I want to see Florida State, Florida, and Miami all be great together like we had in the 90s. And I just don't know if it's possible because since the 90s, look at what what's happened. Miami won their championship and had a great team in the early 2000s. Florida State and Florida were both, I wouldn't say down, down, but they weren't at a super high level. Miami goes back down. Urban Meyer comes into Florida. They win their championships when Florida State is at the end of the Bobby Bowden era. Miami's kind of in trouble. Nick Saban's not in Alabama yet and had just left LSU, right? Then Nick Saban comes in and starts building up Alabama. Florida falls back down. Jimbo Fisher comes to Florida State, they come back up. So it's super hard to just have all these schools being at the peak level for all their time. I mean, look at Oklahoma and Texas too. Same thing is there. They kind of have rotated and you haven't had too many seasons outside of like maybe 2008 where they're both top five at the same time, right? When when Mac Brown first got to Texas, his thing was, hey, he's not beating Oklahoma. Oklahoma was good. The year that Mac Brown finally won the national title, Vince Young, Oklahoma kind of took a down year that year. And then now Oklahoma's been dominant for a long time, and Texas has yet to get back, right? So it's so interesting. Like You just analyze what's what's going on here, and based on all that information, that's why I think, one, Marion Cristobal is a big candidate for USC Two, if you're Oregon, you better go win a national title this year or get something crazy in this next year or two because the days of you being the best brand in the Pac-12 might be over, which isn't you know good news if you're an Oregon fan. I, I like the Ducks, right? I went to University of Oregon after my time at Florida State. I'm from the state of Oregon. It's been awesome to see this program grow. 
But if you're a, a national fan, right, you and you want college football to remain what it is, and, it, and you think it's important for the Pac-12 to be good, then you kind of need USC to be back. The reality is, is the Pac-12 is never going to be at peak efficiency if Oregon is the best team in the conference. That's just, it's just not the way it's going to go. So USC getting back to peak efficiency would be really great. If they could do that without sucking up all of the the talent from the other teams in the conference, right? You know, if Oregon can stay strong, if UCLA can still ascend, if Arizona State can maybe keep on pace with what they've been doing lately, that'd be really great, right? Maybe, you know, Stanford, the way they were, I don't see them coming back anytime soon, but this conference, I've already talked about how it's it's interesting this year in the Pac-12, and hopefully with USC coming back, it'll continue to get more interesting. And if you could have a brand on the West Coast become at a level that competes consistently for conference and national championships and playoff berths, that would really help shake up this grand landscape of college football that we love and really start to get things back to the, you know, kind of the pre-Alabama dynasty era, which is an era I'm kind of longing for at this point, you know. We're getting a little bored here. Nothing against Alabama, but we like we like to see different things. So, I don't know. The other coaches I think are, are candidates for this job is obviously Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. I go both ways on him because I think it's really hard to go from a group of five school to a power five big time job, right? We saw how Willie Taggart did it at Florida State, not good. We've seen some other coaches, you know, Tom Herman. And Tom Herman's similar to Luke Fickle in this way, where the thing I do like about Luke Fickle is, well, he was at Ohio State for a long time. So he knows what it's like to be around a big time program with huge expectations. And then he's been a head coach. He's done well at Cincinnati, so he, he seems like a good fit, but again, that LA thing I was talking about, I don't know if Luke Fickle has that LA factor, right? And and you go back to Tom Herman, same thing. Tom Herman was at Ohio State, had been around a big-time program, then goes and does well as a head coach at Houston at a group of five school, and then becomes a head coach at a big-time program, also in the same state of Texas, and he just wasn't able to get them to where they needed to be. And USC, I mean, they've already messed around, right, the, since the Pete Carroll left, right? You had the, the Lane Kiffin experiment. You had the Sarkeesian debacle, right? Helton stays, and he just hasn't been able to get them to where they want to be, where they feel they need to be, where I feel they need to be. So they really have to knock this hire out of the park. The other reason I'm glad they did it early is because USC could still rally this season. Remember, they're one of the more talented rosters in the Pac-12. So if you look at the last two times they hired coaches in the middle of the season, right? Lane Kiffin the one time, and then Sarkeesian gets, you know, basically escorted out of the building for being a drunk, basically, right? If you look at those two seasons, they finished strong that year. That's why Clay Helton has his job, remember? Because he was the interim coach for Sark. Coach O at LSU was the interim coach when Kiffin left. And he had them finish strong. Remember, they almost kept Coach O and then decided, like, no, we don't want to keep this interim. It was a nice season, a way to bounce back, but we're going to go outside. They brought in Sarkeesian. When the whole Sarkeesian thing fails, they keep um, Helton as the interim coach. They have a bounce back, you know, in the middle of the year. And they're like, okay, well, let's not do what we did last time when we got rid of Coach O. Let's keep Coach Helton. I'm not going to go back and say that was a mistake back then. I think the real mistake was you should have just fired Clay Helton 
a few years ago. Maybe after that 6-6 six and six season, I'm like, yeah, this isn't cutting it. But anyway, regardless, um, another candidate real quick that I think would be big on USC's list would be James Franklin at Penn State. I think he would also do really good in LA. He's a proven recruiter and not just a good recruiter, but a good developer. I really like what he's done at Penn State when Florida State got rid of, well, first when they got rid of Jimbo, the the first time I was looking for a coach, and even when they got rid of Taggart, I was really high on hoping maybe they could convince James Franklin to come down to Tallahassee. Obviously, that didn't work out, but and then if I'm Penn State, like I would not let James Franklin go. We'll see how committed Penn State is to football based on what happens here. If you're Penn State and you consider yourself a football power and you want to compete for Big Ten titles and you're trying to catch Ohio State, you cannot let USC come in and take your coach. So if they do try to do that, you got to offer him a raise and you got to say, we're behind you. Because I guarantee you what Franklin's going to do He's going to listen to the USC offer. I think he listened maybe even last time. And last year when there was the rumors about USC was considering getting a coach, but they couldn't get the guys they wanted, I believe they probably did reach out to Franklin. And maybe he wasn't interested or wasn't showing interest. So USC is going to come after Franklin, I believe, and they're going to say, hey, we're going to give you all this, this, and this. And I think if you're James Franklin, you're going to be like, I want every resource available to me, like how committed are you? And if you're Franklin, you're going to sit there and go, which one of these two programs is more committed? If Penn State says, no, we are fully committed. We will give you all the resources. We're going to put all the money into our facilities, into our structure, let you hire any assistance that you may need now or in the future and go after things. Then he probably stays at Penn State. They probably need to give him personally a raise as well. Just why not? Um, But if Penn State's kind of like, well, we want to keep you, but come on, let's not get crazy here. Like, we're, we're doing okay. And then USC's like, you get to come here and get anything you want. Then he might listen to that USC offer. So for me, those are the main candidates. There are other candidates, right? Obviously, I'm not going to get too into the ins and outs of all these different candidates and how good of fits they might be, right? My main focus is just like, hey, the USC job is open. And if USC makes a good hire here, it's going to change the landscape of college football, which is the exciting angle that I'm coming at it from because I love changing college football. I think college football really needs USC to get back to a big, big time level. The Pac-12 definitely needs it. So it's exciting stuff. After a crazy week two, there were all these games, there were upsets, there were all sorts of different storylines, and then bam, we get this news dropped on us. At the end of the day, from a big picture standpoint, this is the most important thing, which is why I just spent 30 minutes on it. And now, let's try to transition here into you know, the current college football landscape, what just happened in week two. There were a bunch of crazy different things that happened. Obviously, the most notable thing was Oregon going to Ohio State and winning, which was an incredible win for Oregon. And I don't, I think a lot of people were surprised, right? Ohio State was a 13 and a half point favorite, maybe a 14 point favorite, which is pretty big for a game of this caliber. And Oregon went in there and they played really well. And I don't think, I think a lot of people were surprised that Oregon won, but more surprising than Oregon winning was kind of how they won. Like I said, they didn't have to go into trick plays. They didn't get extremely lucky You know, they kind of, I wouldn't say dominated, but they matched Ohio State up front. They ran the ball on Ohio State. 
They stopped the run for Ohio State. Now, Ohio State's got an amazing offense, and they're going to get theirs, right? C.J. Stroud, you could make an argument he didn't play well because he left a lot of plays on the field. But you could also make the argument he played pretty well. He had great stats, and he took them down the field, and they kept the pressure on Oregon, right? So Oregon had to keep its foot on the gas. But this Oregon team, it looks different. It's the same argument I was making about UCLA when they beat LSU, right? That wasn't a normal Chip Kelly team. Well, it was from a standpoint of like, you know, they are running that offense, but they're physically running the ball. Their linemen are pushing guys around. Their defensive players are, you know, filling holes, making tackles. It's looking more like the type of football we see in the Big Ten and in the SEC. Same thing can be said about Oregon on even a higher level. Like Oregon, remember, Oregon didn't have five defensive starters in this game. Their two best players on defense by far, right, and Kayvon Thibodeau and Justin Flo, who unfortunately looks like will be out for the season, but they didn't play with a couple other defensive starters, but they're deep enough now where that doesn't matter. Oregon still was able to play tough in this game, where before, if Oregon had a big-time player like a Thibodeau and he was out, that one guy would bring down their total production on like the D-line or on the defense substantially. And obviously, they would have loved to have Thibodeau in this game. But without him, they still were able to go in there and play big-time football against Ohio State. And Ohio State, obviously, their defensive struggles from last year have not been addressed. Ohio State's still very elite. They're still very, very good. Everything's still in front of Ohio State, including a potential playoff, right? You go If this is your only loss and you go win the Big Ten... There's like a 90% chance you make the playoff, right? You just, I mean, we got to see what happens in the rest of college football. But it doesn't look like they're at Alabama's level. Honestly, neither does Oregon. I mean, I've talked about this, right? It just it looks like as of today, nobody is on Alabama's level. That could change, right? I don't want to be too reactionary because we've seen other seasons in the past where a team gets a crazy hot start. Speaking of USC, right? They're a good example. In 2008... They looked like they were just going to boat race their way through the entire season. Then they get upset by a team they're not supposed to. And they end up not, you know, making it that year. So I'm kind of hoping for a 2008-style season, right? I'm kind of hoping... Don't get mad at me, Alabama fans. It's not anything to do with I don't like Alabama. It's just you like to see shakeups and interesting things happen in the season. And and it would be kind of boring if Alabama just boat raced their way through every single team, got to the playoff, dominated every game, and and won the title again. I think they probably will do that based on what I'm seeing. But right now it looks like Alabama is just unstoppable. But, But we don't know, right? We don't really know. That's why I'm really interested in this game against Florida. You know, you still feel like Alabama's way ahead of Florida right now. But is Florida a way bigger test than Miami? I think based on what we've seen so far, yes, right? Miami obviously got destroyed by Alabama. Miami comes back in that App State game. They don't even cover. They barely get the win. Miami's such a hard team to judge. And I talked about this before, right? Where sometimes losing to Alabama can really end up making you lose multiple games. So I'm actually in a way sort of impressed with Miami. Like they were able to hold on and they got that win against a pesky team. It is hard to go play Alabama in a kickoff game where I'm sure the emotions were high. Then you come back against a team that isn't as sexy as Alabama, but you still have to get up for that game. And they got the win. And now they're playing Michigan State, who Michigan State looks a lot better than last year. And that's that's a decent game. So 
I'm actually really excited for that game. I think that's a cool helmet game, right? Michigan State, Miami, it's not a neutral site game. It's going to be on campus. That's that's exciting. Uh, I'm excited for that. But looking on to next week, you know, Alabama, Florida is exciting just because I want to see where Alabama's at and also where Florida's at. I, I kind of feel like I know where Florida's at and I just want to see how close they can take Alabama, right? And and then if they do take Alabama close or who knows, maybe even win, what's going to be the reaction to that? Is it going to be Alabama's not this all-world beater team that we thought they were? Obviously, no matter what happens in the game, Alabama's still going to be super scary, super good, right? But is it going to be one of those things where, okay, Alabama's not what we thought it was, which would be exciting because now the landscape really opens up. Or is it going to be one of those things where, well, maybe Florida's way better than they are. They're a contender now. It's hard at this point to imagine that Alabama doesn't win this game by two touchdowns at least. And I'm no Florida Gator fan, obviously, but I still really want to see Florida compete in this game because, I mean, who doesn't love competitive college football games, right? So I'm really excited for that. Um, if you're following my the Instagram page I created, the College Football Classics, uh, today, this morning, I I just uh, posted the, the 2008 SEC championship game between Alabama and Florida, and I'll be posting several classic Alabama Florida matchups because it's you know it's a classic SEC game and this year you know it it should be bigger than it seems right it's it's number one versus number 11 it's Florida it's Alabama that should be getting us all excited but I think even Florida fans are sitting here like well like do we do we have a shot in this game and that's when I talk about landscape of college football this is one of the things I would like to get away from there's some years where if two ranked teams are playing, it's a game, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you're one through five and you're playing someone in the 20s or in the teens. Like, a ranked team versus a ranked team should always be a big game where you're kind of like, who's going to win this one? I don't know, right? But we're sitting here today, and the way college football has been going lately, the last few years, where it's like, yeah, Alabama's won. Florida's 11 right now. We're three weeks into the season. But, I mean, does anybody feel like Florida has a chance to win the game? I don't know. So, I really hope we see a competitive game in that game, obviously, um, just to shake things up a little bit. Whether Florida wins or not, you know, that's going to be interesting because you also hope Florida can be competitive in the East, right? It looked like Georgia was the only team in the East that had a chance, but we'll see. That's going to be a really interesting game. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping around here. Didn't even talk much about Oregon-Ohio State, but bringing it back to that, right? Like Ohio State was maybe that other team that you thought could play with Bama after this week. I don't know. They're, they're definitely not on that level yet. And based on the Georgia-Clemson game, I don't think Georgia or Clemson is on that level yet. The nice thing about college football is you have an entire season and all of these teams could improve drastically, right? Ohio State, while they struggled a little bit in their first two games, they've been able to just turn it on, right? Because that offense is explosive and they have a freshman quarterback that they're still breaking in and he's missing some throws. But let's say he dials it in throughout the season. If he doesn't miss throws like at all and he gets to that level by the end of the season, Ohio State probably can play with Bama. And they've obviously got to clean some stuff up on defense because that's the main difference between Ohio State and Alabama right now is on the defensive side. Alabama looks like they're playing Georgia defense with Ohio State offense. If you look at all the other top teams in the country, right, Clemson, Georgia, Oregon now, Ohio State, 
they're kind of one side of the ball is very dominant. Oregon actually looks like the most consistent on both sides of the ball. Now, they struggled that week one, so we're like, okay, but this Ohio State game looked pretty promising. That's why it's going to be really interesting to see what Ohio State does going forward. Is Ohio State falling off a little bit? Are they dropping a little down to the rest of the Big Ten? Right? I'm kind of hopeful that, not hopeful saying I'm hoping for this, but I, I kind of think Penn State can play with Ohio State this year. So I don't know. Is that because Penn State's coming up to Ohio State's level? Or is it because Ohio State's taking a slight dip down to that Penn State level? We'll see, right? The problem with Oregon, if you're going to compare them to the best of the best, which is Alabama, I think those teams are very, very similar, but Alabama just is kind of on another level with players, right? Even better and deeper players on defense. A better quarterback, right? That's the one thing with Oregon is like, okay, does Oregon have a quarterback that can go win you a game in the final minutes? Doesn't feel like it. But maybe they're going to play the style of football where they don't really need that, right? If they can grind it out on teams, at least going through the rest of the Pac-12, Oregon should be able to grind their way through. But, I mean, if Oregon wants to win a national championship, win a college football playoff game, eventually you're going to have to hope that you've got a quarterback that can step up in that moment. We'll, we'll see what happens. And the other nice thing is Oregon has kind of given themselves a mulligan now, right? If you go back to... 2019, when Oregon had that Rose Bowl run, they barely missed the playoff, right? And I think a lot of people are like, oh, they, they missed the playoff because of that stupid Arizona State game. Well, they really missed the playoff because they let Auburn off the hook in week one. That's why they missed the playoff, right? If, if Oregon beats Auburn in week one of 2019 and gets that win over the SEC team in a kickoff game, that would have just elevated the conference perception a little bit. And then if they, you know, lose that Arizona State game and they go into the Pac-12 championship game with one loss against another one-loss Pac-12 team, which was Utah that year, that game would have been a de facto playoff game, right? The winner was going to the playoff, where instead Oregon came in 10-2 and two and it was like, okay, Oregon's playing for the Rose Bowl, Utah's playing for the playoff, and Oregon got the win, a pretty dominating win, actually. So this year... If Oregon does what almost any college football team does, going undefeated is very hard. The Pac-12 is deep, right? Oregon has to play UCLA this year, which they could rematch them later. But if they drop a game to a team that maybe they're not supposed to you know, lose to, maybe they go on the road and they drop a game to someone, they'll at least be in position to get back in the conference title game and then hopefully win that game. So Oregon just needs to take care of business against Stanford and win these North games because Stanford, although they didn't look like competition, Stanford's 1-0 in the conference now. Oregon hasn't played a conference game. Even Washington, who you, looks pretty bad, the problem is is that's not a team you want to drop to a game to if you're Oregon because they're in your division. What Oregon can't do is lose to a team that somehow ends up with the same conference record as them and then still wins the division. Oregon definitely needs to get to the Pac-12 championship game, even if they have a loss. But if they get there with the loss and they win that game, especially if they're playing a ranked opponent, and especially if that opponent has 10 or more wins, they're probably playoff bound, right? Again, you can never guarantee that for anyone because we don't know what's going to shake out. But that, that that's where we stand. And I, if I'm an Oregon fan, I'm really excited today. And like I said, Oregon, you got to go get yours this year or maybe next year because... That whole shakeup at USC, that does affect you. Maybe USC doesn't take your coach, 
But if USC makes the right hire and they are back, Oregon's going to struggle to maintain that level of recruiting that they've been doing. Because like I've talked about, Oregon owes a lot of their success over the last decade to USC being down. Not taking anything away from Oregon, but the reality is, is there's a lot of players that Oregon's made their roster deep with, especially now, players that they probably don't get if USC is at peak efficiency. So Oregon needs to go, if they win a national championship this year, they'll finally have that brand at a powerful enough place where maybe even if USC is at peak efficiency, they can still keep these recruiting battles really, really tight. But the reality is USC makes just a slight bounce back and Oregon's going to lose some of those battles. So that's why it's important if Oregon wins a national title or something, they can probably go into other states. They can go east of the Rockies and get more players, something they haven't done phenomenal. Yeah, I know DeAnthony Thomas and Michael James, those are like Texas guys. Or no, sorry, DeAnthony, I think, was was a L.A. guy. But like LaMichael Thomas was a Texas guy. Or LaMichael James, sorry, was a Texas guy. So, you know, it, it's just going to open up the recruiting. And then, hey, maybe the Pac-12 with Oregon and USC and maybe UCLA ascending, not only can they hopefully keep the West Coast guys in the West Coast, but maybe even do the thing where, hey, we'll go in and we'll take players from out East. We'll go get Texas guys. We'll go get... Southern guys, Oregon's done a good job at recruiting Florida. They never get their first pick in Florida. Obviously, the Florida schools do, and so does Bama, and so does Clemson, right? Even Florida and Florida State are losing recruiting battles to Clemson and Bama with in-state guys. So that's obviously a problem, but these brands need to, are starting to recruit more nationally. Oregon has a great national brand. It seems like every player in every state knows who Oregon is already because of how great they've done at building up that brand and going to a national championship game in 2010, going to another national championship game in 2014, winning a playoff game in 2014. And now they finally have the players on defense and the depth to where they might be able to get in the game and, and win one against an Ohio State team with a big defense, which they just did, or, you know, play an Alabama, play a Clemson. So if you're Oregon, you're really excited but at the same time, I'm a little scared with this USC news. Like, I need if I'm Oregon, like, I need to go get mine this year, right? Or maybe next year, right, before USC gets on. And the USC thing could happen very, very fast because remember the last couple times USC fired a coach middle of the season, they ended up finishing really strong. Steve Sarkeesian was about to have a pretty good successful tenure at USC, but the dude was a freaking drunk or pillhead, whatever it was, and he totally ruined that. But if USC finishes strong this year, let's say the interim takes over, they have a good season, right? They go win nine or 10 games and then hire a sexy name. Well, then that name's going to come in and already have some crazy recruiting advantages, right? I mean, can you, if USC grabs an Urban Meyer, bam, that's going to completely change the recruiting landscape for tons of teams, Right, And basically every guy in California who might be committed to another school right now, he's going to at least listen to what USC has to offer if they get a big name at head coach. And if you combine that with them maybe finishing strong this year, which is completely possible because they have a good roster. So watch out Pac-12, watch out college football. USC could be on their way back. And let me try to 
keep it in the sport for a second. For, for a quick second, let's go back to the conference supremacy conversations because those are important for the big picture. And guys, literally, you couldn't have had a worse couple of weeks for all the conferences outside of the SEC. If you're trying to keep the SEC in check, if you're worried about the SEC Super League coming and all the stuff of conference expansion, you did a piss poor job these last two weeks. You can go listen to the show last week where I talked about you know how the ACC struggled and stuff, and guess what? The ACC struggled again. Now, Pitt did get a good win against Tennessee, but unfortunately, that by itself was not going to be enough. The SEC had a great week once again, two games specifically for me. Obviously, the biggest one is Arkansas and Texas, right? Now, maybe as the season goes on, Arkansas ends up actually being a competitor in the SEC, which we didn't think was the case before the season. And maybe Texas is actually at the bottom of the Big 12, which we thought they were top three in the Big 12. But unfortunately, people are way too reactionary. And what that game looks like is it looks like one of the teams in the bottom half of the SEC, maybe the bottom half of their division in Arkansas, just beat like the second best team in the Big 12, right? That second best team in the Big 12 that you thought maybe has a chance against Oklahoma this year, it was either Texas or Iowa State. Iowa State was the hot team. Texas has the new coach. They have the good roster. But they got destroyed by Arkansas. They didn't go get upset by Arkansas on the road. Arkansas dominated that game at the line of scrimmage, running the ball, passing the ball, playing defense. They dominated the game. And if you're Texas, you're probably just like, come on, like, are we back or are we not back? Like, it would have been one thing if, you know, Texas lost a close game on the road at Sark's first year, but the way they lost, that was damning. That was damning for Texas and this conference perception stuff, because this is one of the bottom teams of the SEC, supposedly, right? We don't know going forward, but that wasn't good. Another big game was Mississippi State, NC State. And I think a lot of people on the national scale that have these conference conversations, again, they only focus on the top, but this game was important because NC State was supposed to be a decent team in the ACC Atlantic. Maybe the second best team, right? They looked good against South Florida. I mean, probably everyone's going to look good against South Florida this year. But, okay, they're a not a top-level ACC team, but in that upper echelon, you know, top eight probably in the ACC, and you're playing... Not a top five, top six, seven team in the SEC. You're playing Mississippi State. And they just didn't look like they could stay on the field with them. These are the games that completely shift that perception to the SEC being the best, right? It's not when Alabama beats Miami. It's not when Georgia beats Clemson. It's when our middle tier teams dominate your middle tier teams. It's when Ole Miss destroys Louisville. It's when Mississippi State destroys NC State. It's when Arkansas destroys Texas. These are things where the SEC gets to pump its chest. And sticking in the ACC, the ACC is in trouble. Like I said, Pitt did get that win over Tennessee. Okay, that, that was good. That was one you had to have. But you had to have that NC State-Mississippi State game if you were the ACC. Combine that with what Florida State just did. Gosh, I mean, don't even get me started on that game, but just ridiculous. Not only for Florida State as a program, losing to who's a not good FCS team, right? We're talking about a Jacksonville State team, just beat Florida State. The week before, they lost to UAB 31 to nothing. If you listen to the Florida State 
game previews for this Jacksonville State game leading into this week, they didn't have much to say because they were like, I mean, Jacksonville State did so bad against UAB, we don't really have much to talk about them. And Florida State played this great game against Notre Dame, right? Oh, they're they're kind of on their way back. No, they just laid the biggest egg and forget the loss, right? The loss is terrible. The way they lost on that last play was terrible. But even if Florida State had held on, tackled that guy in bounds and won this game, it was still an embarrassment. And this is coaching. And you can go into several games this week and talk about how college football is crazy. These 18, 19-year-old kids getting up for certain games, not getting up for other games. It's, uh, it's, It's so frustrating, but it also makes it so fun to watch, right? There was a clear difference for Notre Dame and Florida State, right? Last week, both teams fired up to play each other. It's a big helmet game. It's Notre Dame. It's Florida State. Sold out stadium, crowd going wild, night game. Both teams play their their tails off. Notre Dame gets the win. And then both teams go play teams that on paper they absolutely should beat and beat hard. And Notre Dame barely beats Toledo. And Florida State loses to Jacksonville State. Just unexcusable on both ends. Notre Dame got the win, but come on, Notre Dame. What are you doing? And then Florida State, gosh. I mean, Mike Norvell's job at Florida State just got so much harder. Florida State was going to struggle to win six games this year, and that was with this Jacksonville State game being a guaranteed win. Florida State's going to really have a hard time holding on to this recruiting class if they go 4-8 and eight or 5-7 and seven again. That's just the reality. And if they don't get this recruiting class to stay together, they're not going to get better for next year. I mean, we're year two into Mike Norvell, right? So the culture there of the players playing better, and they did play better than the Willie Taggart era, right? They were in a game against a good team in Notre Dame or who we think is a good team. We don't know, right? They were down 18 points and came back where the Willie Taggart Florida State teams would have would have folded. You're down 18. They would have given up right then. The Willie Taggart teams also did not look like they knew what they were doing when they played these FCS games, right? But at least they didn't lose those games, right? This one's all on coaching. And how do you tell the players to... Take every opponent seriously if you're not doing that as coaches. Florida State comes out in the second series, and they have both quarterbacks on the field. Jordan Travis and McKenzie Millen, they're trying to do all this cute stuff. They got this Wildcat stuff going on. That is proof that the coaches thought this was a game they could not lose. Go get up 21-0 first, or at least 14-0 before you start being cute. Right? You could tell the coaching staff was more focused on putting stuff on tape for Wake Forest, trying to like you know create situations, trying to turn the game into a scrimmage. Jacksonville State's playing in their Super Bowl. Okay, and the more you let them hang around, the more confidence they get. I was actually impressed with Florida State's effort, right? The defense still played hard. The offensive guys looked like emotionally they were ready. They just committed way too many penalties, and I think the coaches failed them in this game. So this is just the story of college football, right? How many matchups can you do this in? I think the same thing happened a little bit with Texas and Arkansas. Texas thought they were playing the better team last week. Sark did a good job and Texas did a good job saying, hey, this 23rd ranked or 20th ranked, whatever they were, Louisiana team that had a great season last year, they're for real. We got to come out and play them tough. And they did. And then, oh, Arkansas was terrible last year. Arkansas is still an SEC school, guys. It's, it's, it's a home game. The fans are back this year. It's a crazy game. And before you know it, the game's over. USC and Stanford, same thing, right? Stanford should not have beaten USC just from a talent 
perspective, right? But USC is probably looking at, hey, we played a tough San Jose State team. We got the win. They're looking at the Kansas State-Stanford film from week one where Stanford can't even move the ball. And they're like, we're going to win this game probably pretty handily. And then you got guys thinking, oh, how many touchdowns am I going to have? You know, you got backups thinking, oh, I'm probably going to get in this game. And the preparation just isn't there. When Jacksonville State beat Florida State and they cut to the ACC network, you know, um, reporters afterwards, you had E.J. Manuel in there with his hand over his head. He just was in disbelief. And Mark Rick said a quote that I think is brilliant and perfect for this. He says, if you're not ready for a 60-minute game and then a 60-minute game happens, you've already lost. You've already lost. Sometimes we see teams get lucky walk their way through these games and get lucky, right? That was like, you know, Florida State the last few years when they played these games, right? It's Samford, Louisiana Monroe. If you're a Florida State fan, you know the games I'm talking about, but you finally got unlucky. You finally got what you put out effort-wise, right? You got to take every opponent seriously. This would never happen at Alabama under Nick Saban. Think about it. I went through all the years. Most of it's from memory, but just to double check, Alabama has never truly been upset since Nick Saban's been there, since the dynasty started. Like, yeah, in 2007, his first year when they were trying to turn everything around. But since the dynasty really started from 2008 to 2021, Alabama has never truly been upset. By upset, I'm talking about an opponent that you are supposed to dominate and you didn't take them seriously enough and they got the upset. Yes, Alabama's been upset on spreads a couple times, right? Ole Miss got them in 15. Texas A&M got them in 12 with Johnny Menzel. But those were good ranked football teams, right? The Johnny Menzel 2012 team, they went to the Cotton Bowl. They won 10 or 11 games that year. Those Ole Miss teams that got them were 10-11 win teams, right? That played in the uh, you know New Year's Six Bowl games that year. And then they've dropped a couple national championship games. Like, oh no, Clemson, the other best team in the country, beat it. Like, those aren't upsets. A real upset is, you know, what we talk about where, hey, you're 26 point favorite at home, and this team's not even supposed to be on the field with you, and then you lose it, right? I'm talking Oregon State beating USC in 2006 and 2008, Stanford beating USC in 2007, right? We're talking the Appalachian State Classic against Michigan in 07. We're talking games like that. Every other dynasty, look at Urban Meyer. Even he dropped that one game against Iowa, that one game against Purdue that one year. Those are the type of upsets I'm talking about. And throughout the history of college football, you've always been able to count on these upsets happening to every program. Bob Stoops in Oklahoma would always have a weird Big 12 loss, right? Even now, Oklahoma does that, right? That's just college football. But the one program that has never let that happen is Alabama and Nick Saban because he is a freak. He Literally, he isn't joking when he says we take every opponent the same. Whether Nick Saban's playing Mercer or Nick Saban is playing number one LSU on the road, his preparation doesn't change. For that program, every game is a national championship game. Every game is that game of the century LSU game. And other programs haven't been able to match that. And it's on the coaches, right? A lot of coaches are pretending that they do that every week. But I mean, if you look at Florida State this week, it was evident that wasn't the case. That was not the case. Again, and with that game specifically, it was more 
coaches than players. Most of the time, it's the players, right? And the coaches just didn't get the message through, and the players didn't take that game seriously. But in the case of this Florida State-Jacksonville State game, it was kind of the other way around. Those players, at least on defense, were playing really hard, and the coaches just failed them. Failed them. The only way Florida State can bounce back from this, in my opinion, is they got to go win Wake Forest and Louisville in a row, right? If Florida State starts 0-3, probably their win ceiling max becomes two or three games. If you go three and nine, it's over. It's probably literally over for Mike Norvell. Now, they can't fire him this year, obviously, contract stuff. But his recruiting class will fall apart. And then next year's team won't be better. And very similar stuff is going to happen. So Mike Norvell just made his job the hardest job in football. Basically, he has to go beat Wake Forest in Louisville. And I think you will see Florida State play good against Wake Forest. But I don't know if that's going to be enough for them to win. It's not a good team. They don't have the players. They don't have receivers that can make separation. They're dealing with the McKenzie Milton Trap and Jordan Travis debate. And it, it is a tough debate. I would not want to be Mike Marvell right now, but gosh, that's getting really tough, right? I'd much rather, if I'm Florida State fan, I'm sitting here, I'd much rather be Texas and USC, right? It's funny, I'm I'm seeing all these people on Twitter, online post about, you know, if you're, you know, USC fans, oh my gosh, how we get upset. Texas, how did we let this happen? Like we look like crap against Arkansas, you know, you name it. Miami fans even like, how are we playing close against App State? Like, I thought we were finally at a level where we should dominate this team. And then all those teams look at what happened to Florida State and they're like, oh, okay, it could be worse. I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it, right? I think if you're a USC fan in the long term, this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. You drop the Stanford game, you get rid of Clay Helton, now you have a chance to maybe turn the season around, right? Technically, USC is still alive for a playoff berth, right? This could be the turnaround, Florida State's in huge, huge trouble once again, right? It's been five years of this crap, and you can't blame the fans for being super frustrated, and it hurts even more when you got teased with that Notre Dame game last week, which, by the way, I said this last week, I said this literally right after the game ended, the Florida State Notre Dame game, that, you know, maybe we just watched a 2016 Texas Notre Dame game where you thought, oh, that was a great game between two good teams, and and Notre Dame got upset, but Texas is back, and it turned out they both sucked. Based on how Florida State and Notre Dame played this last week, I'm leaning towards more maybe they just both suck. So, anyway, I'm sorry, guys. I rambled and went way back and forth there after we got done with the USC talk. I'm over an hour now, so I'm going to try to cut it off here. Like I said, once... Um, end of September comes, I'm going to be getting more than one episode a week. I'll be able to, instead of rushing everything into one episode, we'll be able to talk about more things, more consistent. Eventually, I'm transitioning to video shows, so that's going to be great for those of you that are on this on the YouTube channel. You're going to be able to see video, and I'll be able to cut you know better video segments. But for now, I've been enjoying everyone that's listening. We are growing, right? Um, numbers are going up only got like 20 something downloads you know when i first came back we're up to like 50 listens and episodes nothing crazy obviously but if we keep putting in the work i have a you know a lot of visions for where i want this show to go and what i want this to be right i want us all to be able to talk college football that's the whole thing so stay with me appreciate everyone who's been listening remember you can email the show let's talk college football at gmail.com follow me on twitter at michael underscore k87 reach out to me on there 
Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, right? Like I said, we're on YouTube. And check out that Instagram account, College Football Classics. If you want to keep up with old games and memories, I'm always posting stuff on there. And I try to keep it relative to the week, right? Like I said, we got Alabama-Florida this week. I'm posting some old those, mat- those old matchups from the past. We've got Oklahoma-Nebraska this week. I'm posting some of those old matchups from the past, right? And there's a lot of good ones of that, by the way. So... Thank you all, and I will see you guys next week. I know I didn't get too much into this upcoming week, right? But there's just too much to cover. That USC breaking news really kind of took priority. So let's enjoy this week, see how the landscape changes, and yeah, (laughs) talk to you guys later.